0: Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically.
1: Welcome everyone to Gimme Shelter, the California housing crisis podcast. I'm Manuela Tobias, housing reporter for CalMatters.
0: And I am Liam Dillon, and I write about housing affordability for the Los Angeles Times.
1: And today, we're talking about the thing that happens when you go somewhere or come home and have to figure out what to do with your car. Parking. Mm Mm-hmm. More specifically, parking's increasingly significant role in housing and transportation debates in California and across the country. Our jumping off point is a new state law that supporters say will make it easier to build housing, and it does so by stripping away parking requirements that can make it too expensive to develop.
0: Now... Manuel, I know we always say that we have the perfect guest for our show, but this time I assure you that is true. It really is. Donald Shoup, a distinguished research professor in the Department of Urban Planning at UCLA. Shoup is the author of the 2005 book, The High Cost of Free Parking, that is considered the bible of the anti-parking requirement movement. Shoup has garnered so many adherents in this world that his followers are known as Shoupistas.
2: I'm famous in a small circle.
1: But first... The avocado of the fortnight.
0: So we're in San Francisco, the city of very high hills and very high housing costs.
1: It's also where the governor was recently to sign a bunch of housing bills, including two measures to incentivize home building in commercial areas. Newsom also announced the awarding of $1 billion to 30 new affordable housing projects across the state. Newsom said the new dollars will help break ground for more than 2,700 housing units.
0: Yeah, so longtime Gimme Shelter followers know that we have tracked the high cost to build affordable housing in California for some time. It costs more here to do it than anywhere else in the country, with the consequence being fewer low-income homes that are built for more dollars. So it turns out four of the projects the governor announced funding for eclipse $1 million per apartment to build. The highest is a proposed development in Hayward in the Bay Area known as Pimentel Place, which, per state statistics, is planned to be a 57-unit apartment complex that will cost $74.9 million to construct.
1: Okay, I'm mathing.
0: (laughs) Yes, so, okay, the math works out to more than $1.3 million per apartment, which is the highest on record for a state-funded affordable housing development and likely the highest in the nation. $1.3
1: million for an affordable apartment. And these four aren't the only ones.
0: That's right, yeah. So over the summer, we at the LA Times did a story that found seven such million-dollar-plus-per-unit projects all in Northern California. So with these new ones, our total for million-dollar-plus is now 11 across California. And I think it's important to note here that my colleague Ben Poston and I first started looking into this issue a couple years ago in 2020, the idea of a $1 million per unit sum was considered this unthinkable ceiling for cost.
1: And yet here we are.
0: Yeah, here we are indeed.
1: Okay, so let's get to the meat of our show where we'll be chatting about one of the reasons you found it costs so much to build low-income housing in California, the parking.
0: And maybe let's start by talking about what the rules are for the intersection between parking and housing now. So government planners at the local level almost always require developers for housing to set aside a certain number of parking spaces when approving a project. There's been an increasing amount of tension on these parking rules, known as parking minimums, over the last couple decades, and the effects that they might have on making housing more costly to build or preventing it from getting built at all.
1: On the face of it, parking minimums seem pretty intuitive. It's the idea that you build a house or an apartment and people are going to live there.
0: So, of course, you want to set aside some space for people to park their cars.
1: And I'm sure we've all had the experience of circling around and around looking for a parking spot.
0: I've been to, like, countless of these local government meetings where you, like, a planning commissioner or city council, where you hear some version or another when discussing a development, but where will people park? Then you also think, well, I mean, a parking is just like an empty space. Like, how expensive could it be to do?
1: Well, Liam, I'm here to tell you the average construction cost per space for a parking structure in the United States is $24,000 one spot, for above-ground parking, and $34,000 for underground parking. Mm. In San Francisco, which eliminated parking requirements a few years ago, parking spots cost as much as $50,000 per new home. And a recent study by Santa Clara University found that the cost of garage parking to renter households is approximately $1,700 per year, Mm. or an additional 17% of a housing unit's rent.
0: Huh, so I guess there is no such thing as free parking.
1: Well, that is the major point of Donald Shoup's work. He contends, and we'll of course get more into this in our interview, that the requirements that local governments put on new development to have a certain number of parking spots is a pseudoscience that leads to too many parking spots and too little housing, while also increasing our dependence on cars. Hmm. Essentially, his point is that the amount of parking needed has been way overestimated, which has led to a bunch of bad outcomes, including blocking needed housing.
0: So to this point, you know, longtime Gimme Shelter listeners may remember that a previous avocado of the year was the San Diego Municipal code.
1: Shout out to the municipal codes out there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. So the San Diego Municipal Code blocked a church from building affordable housing in their parking lot because of its rules that regulated the amount of parking needed per square foot of pew space.
1: That's amazing.
0: So just one more stat about the amount of parking in cars, and this is a very outdated one, but it tells you some of the fun facts that are in Shoup's book. Back when he was writing, if you assume that the worldwide car ownership rate would be what it was in the U.S., that would have meant 4.7 billion vehicles. Wow. And assuming four parking spots per vehicle, one at home, and then three more at other destinations, you'd require 19 billion parking spaces or a lot the size of France.
1: Wow. And it's fun facts like that that made Shoop a cult-like figure in the urban planning world. He certainly embraces that role. His official website is shoopdog.com.
0: Yes, and that's D-O-double-G. <laughs> yep. So let's get to the bill. Noella, why don't you tell us briefly what it does?
1: Yeah, so the new law, Assembly Bill 2097, written by Assemblymember Laura Friedman, goes into effect January 1st, 2023. The law says cities can't impose any parking requirements on new residential or commercial developments as long as they're half a mile from a major transit stop, like a train, major bus, or a ferry. Hmm. The developer, in other words, gets to decide how much parking, if any, to build, but they can't be told by a city.
0: Right. Big distinction.
1: Exactly. There are some technical ways cities can get around this, but by and large, this means no parking minimums near transit anywhere in the state. Supporters say that's a big deal because by getting rid of parking minimums, you're reducing the cost to build housing, as we just discussed, therefore allowing more of it to get built and more affordably. Beyond that, having less parking also reduces the state's dependence on cars, which is good news for California's climate change goals. Here's Governor Gavin Newsom at the signing ceremony making those points.
2: Housing solutions are also climate solutions and we have the power to make change and that's exactly what we're doing. I was proud to sign a bill. Uh, This bill specifically, AB 2097, from Assemblymember Laura Friedman will allow us to make progress by addressing both issues simultaneously, by prohibiting local governments from enforcing parking minimums in new housing near transit. Basically, we're making it cheaper and easier to build new housing near daily destinations like jobs and grocery stores and schools. This means more housing at lower prices, closer to walkable neighborhoods, and public transit.
0: Hmm, Interesting. So before we talk to the professor of parking, let's get to some of the arguments against this bill.
1: Yeah, so of course you have the where will people park people, which fair enough, but somewhat interestingly, you also have groups that advocate for low-income housing. So what's that about? Essentially, they argue that they believe the bill will get more housing built, but perhaps at the cost of more housing specifically dedicated for low-income residents, where the state's deepest shortages exist. Okay. This gets complicated kind of quickly, but basically the idea is that waiving local parking requirements is a crucial carrot that the state and some cities waive in front of developers in exchange for adding more low-income housing units to their project. So the fear is that if you take away those parking requirements beforehand, the incentive for them to build more low-income housing goes away.
0: And one adherent of that view is the Los Angeles mayor, Eric Garcetti.
1: Yeah, he sent a letter urging lawmakers to reject the bill, saying, quote, while proponents of this measure have argued that most developers will still choose to utilize the city's development incentive programs, it is impossible to predict the trade-offs for developers who would have the ability to build more profitable market rate projects without parking instead of the affordable housing the city desperately needs.
0: Interesting, okay.
1: But supporters of the bill say that they have evidence to the contrary. In 2019, San Diego eliminated parking requirements for multifamily housing near transit, but the number of affordable housing units built through its density incentive programs increased, according to a study by professors at UCLA and USC.
0: Huh, that's also interesting. Okay, let's get to the shoot dog himself.
1: We're here with Donald Shoup, a distinguished research professor in the Department of Urban Planning at UCLA, and the preeminent expert on parking in the country. Professor Shoup, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Well, thanks for inviting me.
1: Your book is famously titled The High Cost of Free Parking. So answer us first. Why is free parking so
2: expensive? Why is free parking so expensive? Well, it took me 800 pages to explain that, (laughs) but I think I can put it into three bullet points. There are three things that I recommend. One is to charge the right prices for curb parking. By the right price, I mean the lowest price the city can charge and still have one or two open spaces on every block so that drivers will always see an open space when they arrive. Like in a Hollywood movie about the good life in Manhattan. There's always a curb space you could pull into wherever you go. That's the lowest price the city could charge and still have one or two open spaces. Another way to say it is about an 85% occupancy rate at the curb and about 15% vacant. So that's the best the city could do. The spaces will be well used, meaning most of them will be occupied, but they'll be readily available, meaning that nobody will have to hunt for it. The reason that's important is because when the price is too low or when it's free, people will drive around and around hunting for a vacant space or hoping to see somebody leaving. So the wrong price for curb parking leads to a lot of traffic congestion and air pollution and dangerous bicyclists and pedestrians. As soon as you find a space, you become a pedestrian yourself. So I think the first point is to get the prices for curb parking right. The second point is to spend the meter revenue to pay for added public services on the metered blocks so that the money goes into the meter and comes right out the other side to clean the sidewalks and to plant street trees. Some cities give free Wi-Fi to everybody in the neighborhood or Free transit passes to everybody who, who lives or works at the neighborhood. And the reason for that second point is to make the first point popular, that if people see that these are public services that they won't get if they don't charge for curb parking, then curb parking prices make political sense.
0: Right, right.
2: And then the third point is, getting back to your point, what is the high cost of free parking, is once you get the curb parking priced properly so that there's always one or two open spaces. You could remove all street parking requirements. All street parking requirements are necessary if the curb parking is free, because if somebody comes in and opens up a restaurant and doesn't have any off street parking, where are the customers going to park? They're going to drive around. They'll take spaces that other people were counting on for free. And, I think if we get rid of the off-street parking requirements, that is the biggest benefit of all because off-street parking requirements raise the cost of everything except parking. When you go to a grocery store, and usually the parking lots are bigger than the grocery store, people who are too poor to own a car pay higher prices for groceries so higher-income people can park free. Hmm. And I think that off-street parking requirements are almost a religion in urban planning. But when it comes to free parking, I'm a Protestant, <laughs> uh, and I think we need the Reformation. And that is what the new bill deals yes. with. It's aiming for the end point right away is to say, we're just going to remove the off-street parking requirements. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the start, I think. Yeah. And then what's going to happen at the curb? Cities will have to manage curb parking Mm -hmm. properly if we don't have off-street parking requirements because the natural reaction of everybody, including online in response to Laura Friedman's bill, is, well, where am I going to park? Right, right. And and my answer is, there'll be always a place for you to park, but you'll have to pay for it if necessary. The Mm -hmm. price will, will often be zero, I mean, because even with these reforms because we have so much parking everywhere i mean right. removing off street parking requirements is not the same thing as removing parking right. Uh, right we still have this gigantic oversupply of parking let me ask on that on that point
0: what and i think this is we're trying to get at with some with our first question as well what are the bad things that happen If you have a dramatic oversupply of parking, you mentioned the reference about the grocery store and people end up paying higher food prices because they have to set aside so much land which is expensive. But can you give us a context from your research? What are the bad things that happen if you have this gigantic oversupply of parking?
2: Well, there's so many of them. One, the parking spaces don't just happen. Uh, I mean, (laughs) just because the driver doesn't pay anything for it doesn't mean the cost goes away. So there's a huge cost of building. Mm. But then it spreads uh, buildings apart because there have to be parking spaces around every building. And that ruins the the environment because who wants to walk down a street where there's a parking lot and then a small store and then a parking lot and then a small store and often the the stores are pushed back from the sidewalk and the parking is in front of it showing that the real customers are drivers not pedestrians Mm, yeah it's not a walkable neighborhood it's not a bikeable neighborhood because everything is farther apart well, it's all a part of zoning. Yeah, right? you know, zoning has three components. One is the uses that are allowed. You know, single-family housing, or right? Apartments or restaurants. And the second is the density allowed. You know, how high it can be and how right, many right. units per thousand. You know, per acre or anything like that. So You hold down the density. And then the third point is off-street parking requirements. So I think it's hard to get all three of those things undone. Like, We've done that for a 100 years. Planners have been pushing these policies for over a century. And that has determined the way we live. I mean, cars are great, but they're just so overused. Single family houses are great, but we shouldn't prohibit other things. As well. And there's so many things that we have done wrong. And planners have made mistakes in the past and they make U-turns. And I hope that minimum parking requirements are one of those things that we have been insisting on plenty of parking everywhere for so long. And now comes along some courageous legislators who say, well, we're going to prohibit what you had been requiring all along. It's a ban on a mandate. It, it seems like an oxymoron, but we're, we're now prohibiting what you required.
1: Mm-hmm. One thing that um, can be tough for people to imagine is the sort of alternate world where parking minimums don't exist, because as you said, they've been around for so long. Can you paint a picture um, of what our cities and suburbs would look like without these parking minimums?
2: Well, for a long time, maybe even in your lifetime, you won't see much difference because there's so much here already that it, it'll be very slow to change. With with what we're talking about today, removing minimum parking requirements, is that there'll be a lot of infill building. That now there are a lot of parking lots that aren't required. I think that we're going to see the biggest land reclamation uh, outside of the Netherlands. You know, they reclaim land from the sea we can reclaim land from parking. <laughs> It'll be very slow, but we'll build things. The second thing is, what will happen faster? And I think this is what we'll have to study, see how the bill plays out, is that property owners will be able to change the use of their property. Now, there are hundreds of different parking requirements for hundreds of different uses. You know, How many parking requirements do you need for a nail salon or a animal groomer or something. We have parking requirements for every one of those things. Now, if you want to change a shoe store into a restaurant, the first thing the planners will say, well, where's the required parking? We require 10 spaces per thousand square feet for a restaurant, and you don't have that. So you can't, Convert land from one use to another. But with this new bill, you can convert anything to anything else without paying any attention to parking. So that will be the first thing.
1: You know, the first bill doing this kind of taking away parking minimums was introduced about a decade ago in the legislature. So I guess in more recent history, what do you think has changed? Even last year, a similar bill failed. Why do you think that this was the year that it actually became law?
2: As Thomas Paine said, time makes more converts than reason. I'm certainly a perfect example of that because I've been talking about these things for 50 years. Well,
0: and that is actually what you just said leads us to the last thing that we wanted to ask you. As you just mentioned, you've been at this for a very long time, you know, a half century, you just said. Clearly a passion. We saw there were pictures going on around on the Internet uh, when the bill was signed, that you were at a U- UCLA event wearing a hat that said "Parking Matters" on it, and so we're curious, especially given the length of the time for the political winds to change on this issue, you know how it feels to have the governor of California sign this law and essentially, you know, embrace your your life's work.
2: Well, it's a natural high. So I think that the combination of perseverance and longevity have led to what I've seen. Because I've had a lot of time to say these things, and I have to say it again because nobody was paying attention. And, and naturally, if you work on it longer, you could get the words better, and you have examples of Pasadena or something like that. So I think time is important, and I think that things are, are speeding up, but it will it's wonderful to watch.
0: Well, Professor Shoup, this has been an honor to have you, and we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us and share your thoughts with our listeners.
2: Okay. Well, thanks for inviting me, and I look forward to hearing it.
0: Thank you so much for listening to Gimme Shelter. If you like our podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your other favorite podcast service. This is really important so that new people can discover our comedic stylings and other good news. Our producer at Gimme Shelter is Mary Franklin Harvin. Mary Franklin, thank you for keeping us on track. It's a podcast joke. And as always, our editor is Victor Figueroa. Victor, thank you so much. My name is Liam. I work for the LA Times, and you can find me on Twitter at Dylan Liam.
1: And I'm Manuela Tobias from CalMatters, and my Twitter handle is at Manuela M. Thank you all for listening.